So this is, it really is exciting to, to have the three of you here and um, yeah, just looking forward to what God has to share through each of you this morning. So let me pray for you and then turn it over to the three of you. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the fact that you have united all of us together and you do not want us to stay as infants, but you want us to mature into adults. That's not just physically, but also spiritually. And God, thank you for the work that you have been doing in the Landman Boys since years ago. Thank you for your faithfulness in their lives, and thank you for the promise that you will continue to be faithful in the years ahead. I pray that what you have to share to us through them this morning would be received by each of us in Jesus name. Amen. Cool. Good morning, One Hope. Um, what a blessing it is to be with you guys here. Um, yeah, grace and peace to you all from the Landman household. Um, yeah, it's an absolute privilege to be standing here this morning and um, yeah, I just want to take this time to thank the elders for allowing this. Um, on behalf of the brothers, so yeah, thank you for granting us this opportunity. Um, so just before we get going, I think some of you might be thinking, who are these youngsters standing here and what right do they have to be preaching? It's a very good question. So to get it going, I thought, let me introduce the brothers so you know who we are um, and what preaching capabilities we have. So I've conducted a quick trivia. There's prizes to be won so that you can get to know all of us. So, the first question is, who's the most handsome brother? <coughs> oh, well done, you guys have got it. Cool, and the, the second question is, who's the best brother overall? Well done, well done, you got it. Cool, well done guys. So, now that you know enough about Mark, Scott, and I, and you're confident in our preaching ability, I think we can, we can get going. Cool. I'm just going to start off straight into it and just be a bit vulnerable with you guys. Um, September was a really tough month for me. Um, for someone who never struggled with anxiety or stress or anything like that, I was completely crippled. I was struck with anxiety and I had no clue what had hit me. I was struggling to work. I was struggling to breathe. I was having panic attacks and pretty much sleepless nights. It went on for a couple of weeks. I tried to tough it out and be a man, but it just led to nothing. I had no success in conquering this anxiety. Just lead to be, it just led to being caught in a vicious cycle. So I wanted to ask you guys, do you ever feel like this? Can you relate to it, whether it's a different situation, something else? Are you going through a season that just feels dry? Or are you going through a, fee, a season where you just feel alone and God's nowhere to be found? One day, when in September, it dawned on me that I had the creator of heaven and earth sitting on my bench, just being kept at arm's length. 
And the best part about it all is that he was holding me the whole time. And during that period, he took me through Psalm 23. So graciously, so kind, so loving, the Holy Spirit came. And he invited me to have communion with him. And he prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And it was just beautiful because I was able to be fully dependent on him. I had no other options. I tried everything. My identity was everywhere else except him. But so kindly and so lovingly, he came and held me. And I was able to be dependent on him and grow intimately with him. And so some encouragement for you guys this morning is no matter whatever life throws at you, no matter what season you're in, he is always holding us. And in any circumstance we face, it is just a beautiful opportunity to bring glory to God. And so now you might be thinking, bring glory to God, what does that mean? How do, how do I even bring glory to God? You know, I've heard these athletes on TV or something just say, you know, all glory to God after I win the match. And it's, it's just a phrase that's thrown around in this day and age. But what does it actually mean is the question I pose to you. I'll let my brothers answer your questions. <laughs> but that is exactly why we, we chose this passage. We chose 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 7. And Peter wrote this this, this letter to instruct and encourage believers on how to live in a world where they're strangers and aliens. Now, to be a stranger or an alien in a world pretty much means persecution is inevitable and suffering is expected. But knowing who we are in Christ and that our final inheritance is secure, this supplies us with strength to endure the challenges and to live a godly life in the face of opposition. And for those of you that were here at Testimony Sunday a few months ago, you would have seen everyone is going through something. Everyone is at different walks, at different stages of life. People are suffering. And in this life, everyone is going through a storm. They're about to head into a storm, or they know someone who's in a storm. So I propose this question to you. How do you bring glory to God in your storm or in the situation or the path that you're at right now? If you all have your Bibles, could you turn with me to 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 7? For those who don't have your Bible, I think it should be on the screen. Perfect. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into, living, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven to be genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Cool. Let us pray for it.
So, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word, Lord. Uh, we pray that this time we just honor you and bring glory to your name, Lord. Um, yeah, Lord, we just pray for open hearts to receive your word and your um, yeah, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan. Um, yeah, so as Ryan already alluded to, the main message of this morning is that God has got us no matter what life throws at us. And because God has promised that, it is certain that he'll get us to the end, regardless of the various trials, regardless of what may come our way. And so because of this, we can rejoice in God, even during the trials. And this is exactly what Peter does. Peter is writing this epistle to the exiles that are being persecuted for their faith and are going through all kinds of suffering. And he himself has also lived through immense suffering and will eventually be martyred for his faith after writing this letter. And yet even though he is suffering and is writing to the exiles that are suffering and going through many, many various trials, he starts off his letter by rejoicing in God amidst persecution. And the reason that he's able to do this is because he knows that no matter what happens to him, God has got him and will keep him safe. He knows that he can rejoice in trials because of what lies ahead in eternity and because of the fact that God uses our suffering to refine us so that we maintain glory and honor and praise. And so Peter knew he was writing to a suffering people and he could have started it any number of ways. He could have done anything, and yet the first thing he decides to do is bless, praise, and glorify God. Praise for God is what bursts out of his heart as soon as he starts off this epistle. It's almost as if he cannot contain it. And so this is seen in the way he starts in verse 3 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an exclamation, a bursting forth of praise, because he is supremely overwhelmed by joy in God amidst persecution. And he knows that no matter what happens to him, God has got him. And so now I want to look at two ways that Peter encourages us to rejoice in trials. Firstly, he tells us to rejoice regardless of the trials that are going on. And secondly, he tells us to rejoice specifically in the trials that we are going through. We're first going to look at joy regardless of trials. And so Peter's able to have such joy regardless of trials because he knows two things, and he praises God for these two things. Instead of worrying about suffering, he rather delights in God's glory, because he knows of God's certain protection. The first thing he knows and praises God for, regardless of the trial, is the fact that through God's mercy, we've been born again to a living hope. The second thing he knows and praises God for, regardless of the trial, is the fact that we have an imperishable, incorruptible, unfading, eternal inheritance that God is keeping for us and making sure that we get there. So again, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Sure. 
And so our first reason that Peter delights and glorifies God, even in trials, is because in God's mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God's mercy means God's goodness to those who are in misery or in distress. And this is the reality of our situation when we're outside of Christ, before we meet him. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We are blind. We cannot help ourselves out. We are destined for eternal destruction. The Bible is very clear on the just and painful eternal punishment that is due to all who fall short of the glory of God. And so this is the pit that we find ourselves in. This is the misery and the distress. And the reality is that we cannot appreciate the depths of God's mercy in saving us from sin if we don't understand the punishment and misery that he saved us from. God in his graciousness was merciful merciful to us with a great mercy in saving us from our sin. God's mercy is seen in that he saves us from this misery and distress of eternal punishment through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We are told in Romans 5 verse 10 that before we are born again to a living hope, we were enemies of God in our sin. Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so do we understand the weight of this? You were once an enemy of God, and now he calls you friend. He calls you son or daughter. He calls you loved. The enormity of the situation is that the biggest problem we ever could have had has been taken care of. The scariest thing imaginable is to be an enemy of God. Not various trials or suffering, but being an enemy of God is the scariest thing imaginable. And now that we've been born again, we are friends of God. Because of God's great mercy, we have been born again. We have been given a new heart. We've been called son instead of enemy. And this is the exact reason why Peter delights in God. Because he knows that nothing is more important than the situation that he's been saved of. Various trials or suffering is nothing compared to being an enemy of God. God calls us son or daughter, and that means that he has got us no matter what. And so this reconciling us to God, this making us friends instead of enemies, is something to be delighted in regardless of the trials that we go through, because Jesus Christ has achieved it for us. This is the decisive work of Christ on the cross, in that we were once dead and stuck in our pit of misery, heading towards destruction and he has caused us to be born again. We were dead, and because Jesus rose from the grave, we have new life. The fact that Jesus Christ was raised again is what signals to us that God has got us no matter what, and that we can rejoice in this. Romans 6 verse 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so this is the guarantee that God has got us no matter what. And therefore, this is the first reason that we can rejoice regardless of the various trials that we're all going through. Because the main thing has been taken care of. Because we are friends of God. He has got us no matter what. And our biggest problem has been taken care of by the decisive work of Christ on the cross. The second reason that Peter praises God, regardless of the various trials that we go through, is the fact that we have an imperishable, incorruptible, eternal inheritance that God is keeping for us and 
even better. He's making sure that we get there in the end. God is making sure that we are kept safe for that eternal inheritance. God has prepared a room in heaven for us. And he's going to make sure he fills it. And so this is the reason why Peter knows that God has got him. We can see in Romans 8 verse 32, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here we can see that because of the death of Jesus, this is the guarantee that God will give us all things. He will give us eternal life, and he will give us a perfect inheritance, and he gives us eternal relationship with Jesus. And so this eternal inheritance is described for us a little bit in Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This always makes my heart jump when I hear about this eternal inheritance. And it endures forever. It is pure. It never loses its perfection. And it never dims. God has prepared it for us. And this is what we can delight in, regardless of the trials that go on now. We can rejoice because eternity is set out for us. The perfection of heaven is how we know that God has got us no matter what, because he has promised to share eternity with us. He has promised that he will dwell in us and dwell with us. And that's why we know we're going to make it. We can also know that God has got us no matter what, because the text shows us that God is guarding us for salvation through faith. The guarantee that we have that we will make it through this life and into eternal life is the fact that it is done by God's power and nothing else. If it was up to us, we would certainly not make it. God does not leave us to make it on our own. And so Peter wants every believer to experience a profound sense of security. And he also wants us to exult in the profound sense of of security that is given to us. And so then, a few things about this incorruptible inheritance that we're being guarded for through faith that we can see. Firstly, God has promised, and he will do it. And so there's a salvation that is ready to be revealed. And so we can see that there's much more grace and glory to be experienced. And how exciting is that? Secondly, there's danger on the way to heaven. We need ongoing protection after the conversion. That's what necessitates the faith. There is danger on the way to heaven. And our security doesn't mean we're home free, as there's still a battle to be fought, which we need help and cannot do on our own. And thirdly, we are being protected by the power of God. We are born into a new hope because God has created the faith in us 
and what God has created, he now sustains. Peter knows this firsthand himself. In the garden, before Jesus was denied by Peter, in Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter that Satan has demanded to have him, but that Jesus has prayed for him that his faith may not fail. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith may not fail. And this is why later, after Peter did deny Jesus three times, he wept bitterly and returned from his sin because of Jesus' prayer, because of his guarding. And so we can see that it was God who brought Peter back from the precipice of unbelief. God is guarding us for salvation through faith, and for that he is glorified, for that he should be rejoiced in amidst trials. Peter knows for certain that God has got us no matter what, and this is why he is able to rejoice regardless of the trials that he goes through. And so now the first bit we've seen how we can rejoice in God regardless of the salvations, no matter what, I mean regardless of the persecution, no matter what is going on. But now we move on in the text, we can see that God has got us in various trials because of his purposes in the trials for us. The trials are not just something to be looked over, but something to be looked into. And we can rejoice specifically in the trials themselves. Verses 6 and 7 say, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we can see from the text that Peter gives two reasons why we can have joy in various trials and not just regardless of various trials. And so we can know that God has got us in it because he has specific purposes for us in these trials. And so the first reason we know that he has a specific design in our trials is because he is using these very trials to prepare the weight of glory for us. The trials themselves are preparing glory for us. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17 sheds some light on this. It says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The trials are purposed by God to create a desire in ourselves for heaven a desire in ourselves for being home with Jesus. The trials show us that this world is full of sin and give us a longing to dwell with God where he will wipe away every tear. The trials fix eternity in our hearts. They literally prepare for us future glory. And this is because these various trials are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The trials give us an appreciation for God and a hatred for sin. They make us anticipate heaven more and more as we know that one day we will go there. And so this is the first reason that we can rejoice in specifically various trials and know that God has got us because he's using them to prepare glory for us. On top of that, this right now on earth is your only opportunity to glorify God while suffering. In heaven, you're not going to have that opportunity. There's going to be no sickness and no suffering in heaven. This is your only unique opportunity to glorify God while suffering, which sends an amazing message. 
The second reason that we know that God has got us in various trials is because there's a design of God in our distresses that we can see in the text. We don't just look past the suffering to the end, but we look into it, and we can see how this suffering is designed for our good. It's not meaningless. God is doing something with it. We can see this by the phrase, so that, in the text. This verse spells out the design of God for our distresses. The design is that our distresses would refine the genuineness of our faith, the way that fire refines gold. And this is so that when Christ comes back, the quality of our faith would win praise and honor and glory. His aim is that our faith may be more pure and more genuine. That is the design of him for our trials. We are also told that these are various trials, not just one specific type. And so this caters for every single person in the room. A wide range of different kinds of sufferings. And there's not just one kind of trial in view here. There may be any kind of suffering that we endure. And so whatever suffering you may be going through right now, take strength. God is using it to strengthen your faith and using it for your good. He is using it to refine your faith as fire refines gold. We can take heart because whatever various trials you're going through, God is painting. He may use darker or lighter colors, but he is painting the canvas of your life. And we can know that in the end, the canvas of our life will be glorious if we entrust our souls to our faithful creator. And so we can know that God has got us no matter what. And we can rejoice in that. And we can rejoice regardless of the trials we go through. And we can rejoice specifically in the trials that we go through. Regardless of the trials, because firstly, we're no longer enemies of God, but we're born again. The main thing has been taken care of. And secondly, God has prepared and is keeping us for an imperishable, undefiled eternity. And we can also rejoice specifically because of the trials, as firstly, the trials are preparing us for glory. And secondly, the trials are the means that God uses to refine and perfect our faith. And now what are some practical ways for us to actually rejoice in these trials? Thanks, Scotty, for walking us through so so nicely. Um, and yeah, so practically, what does this look like? Practically, what does rejoicing look like? Um, so I'm going to just jump on this idea that we have an eternal inheritance, which Scotty shared about amazingly. But how does, that, how does that practically influence me now? So I like to think about it like this. Tomorrow, I'm going to go home. We're going to hop on a plane. We're going to go back to Zim. And I'm feeling very, very excited for it. Because I know when I go home, 
I walk in the door, I can leave my brain outside. I don't need to think about much. Mom, what time is lunch? Lunch is at 12. Perfect. Mom, I've got washing. Don't worry, there's the basket. Dad, what are, what are we up to today? Oh no, we're gonna go to the hardware store. Um, we're gonna pick up some stuff and then we're gonna fix the, the water pumps or whatever it is. That's all I need to think about. And the exciting part about that is um, that's what it's going to be like in heaven. We don't have to think about anything. We're just there to glorify and celebrate and get excited about God. But the week before we go is very stressful. Like now I've had the challenge, you know. What do I do with the food? Do I get rid of the milk? Is it going to last till I come back? What about my, um, what about my apples and my fruits and my veggies? Is that, is that going to last? Do I need to do washing? Can I manage the whole week on four pairs of undies? I don't know. <laughs> so that's the, but in this week, the whole time we're thinking about next week when I get home. And that's what makes it, makes the trials, makes the stress, makes it exciting. Does that make sense? I hope I'm making sense. Um, so the idea behind it is us living now, one day we get to experience heaven forever and everything will be fantastic. And the more that we think about it, the more exciting it gets. Um, and it manages or makes all the decisions that we have to make in the week before so much easier because you're just thinking, I just can't wait to be at home. And it just makes the whole journey even more exciting as well. So I think the more that we think about heaven, the more that we think about being with God, it makes the trials so much more worth it, as Scotty was sharing. It refines our faith. Um, so the question is then, in this week before I go home, how am I supposed to rejoice and experience the love of God? So practically, how do I, how do I go about it? So I managed to submit uh, a thesis two weeks ago. Um, yeah, it was very exciting. I'm also pretty pumped. And um, my prof was, he's, he's fantastic, and he's into coaching, and he loves the idea of reflecting. And so he got me to write a, an extra chapter on the end, which is reflecting on my journey, the whole two years journey. So it was 18 months of, of not too much, and three months of, of a lot. Um, <laughs> however, only in the process of reflection was I, so only in the process of reflection was I able to actually stop and see all that the Lord has done in me and through me over the two years. Because I, I think on the back of it, you think about it a bit, like, yo, Lord, this has been a great year or this has been a tricky year, and then that's often it. But after sitting down and having to, to write seven pages about it, I realized, sure, the Lord has actually been super good to me. And the Lord has been really kind to me. The Lord has given me brothers, given me mom, dad, given me the youth group, given me the guys in my discipleship group, the guys in my life group. And this actually made my heart rejoice. But only in the process of reflecting did I fully see all the Lord had done, all that he'd done in my heart. And I got a full perspective of it. So as, a, as someone who coaches hockey a lot, there's some research out that a coach only sees 20 to 30% of what happens in the game. Even though they think, yo, man, I saw everything. I saw our shape, saw this guy who didn't stop the ball well, or this girl who didn't tackle nicely. But you actually only see 20 to 30% of what happens in the game. 
And so I know if I don't reflect on the match or re-watch the match, I'm only remembering 20-30% of what happened. So my coaching the next week is then tricky because I'm trying to encourage the guys or work on some technique which is only 20-30%. However, if I watch the whole match or reflect or re-watch it, then I can pick up on the 70-80% to of what actually happened in the match. So I think us this year, we in um, December, and if I don't stop and reflect on 70 to 80% of what the Lord has done in my year, I'm going to miss out. I'm going to miss out completely on what God has done in my life if I don't reflect. And um, I think it's a, it's a godly principle and a godly discipline. I've been trying to read the Bible in a year, and I'm um, in the Old Testament, so you can guess how that's going. Not great. <laughs> But um, the Old Testament is packed with examples of the Lord doing amazing stuff, uh, something fantastic, and then getting the Israelites to build an altar or pile up some rocks or a, a monument or something like that. And the idea behind that will be the kids or the grandkids will come and be like, Mom, what's the deal with this altar here? Or Dad, why is there a massive pile of rocks here? And then getting Mom and Dad to reflect and think, sure, the Lord actually saved us from the Philistines, or the Lord parted the Red Sea, or we were able to cross the Jordan. And only in that process of looking back and reflecting are we able to then rejoice and be like, sure, God, you looked after us. You took care of us. You led us through the Jordan. You hid us through the Red Sea when the, Philist or the Egyptians were coming after us. And so, guys, reflection should lead us to rejoice and celebrate what the Lord has done. And it's a good reminder that whatever life throws at us, the Lord is with us. So from here, we're going to hop into a bit of a time of communion. So I'd encourage you guys to take it by yourself, uh, sit and reflect and think about what the Lord has done with you this year. Looking into December, it's a great time to look back. I'm sure you've had some work, end of year functions or all that kind of stuff where they do a bit of reflecting, but it's so much more special if it's you reflecting on what the Lord has done. So take it by yourself. I don't know, maybe you want to take it with someone else, but I encourage you by yourself, have a moment alone. Just reflect and rejoice in what the Lord has done with you this year. Just to remind us that he will never leave us and he's got us always. So cool, let's go for it.